I really did miss hospitality and I miss cooking real food and giving it to people straight away and, and seeing their reaction and, you know, the restaurants are actually this amazingly beautiful thing where you, it's its own little microcosm and, um, you know, I, I did miss that. The food world is full of surprises, but some still take your breath away. When I heard recently that Sean Quaid had moved back from the US to Canberra, I was gobsmacked. Sean Quaid is known to many people in food as a fine dining chef. He um, yeah, took Melbourne by storm at Lume and then he took a huge about turn and started making vegan cheese in the US. He is now back in Canberra where he is a key part of the Lawns of the Lobby development. Sean, we need to know everything. Welcome to Daddy Linen. <laughs> Thanks, Danny. Thanks for having me on. It's nice to be back. Well, it's back great home. great to have you back in the country, but it is certainly unexpected. Um, we actually, we chatted to your partner, Veronica Phil, on the podcast a few years ago when you were in the, the throes of taking the US by storm. So, yeah, we'll have to refer people back to that one to, to, to um, yeah, join her in that moment in time. But we're all about what's happening now. So... Perhaps let's start there. What are you doing in Canberra? What am I doing in Canberra? So <laughs> it seems to be the question everyone's asking. So um, yeah, we we wound we wound our business up uh, very successfully in the US, um, where we've been for the last four years, and I really missed hospitality. Um, you know, the four years in food tech was uh, really exciting. It was really challenging because it's completely different, completely left field to what, um, you know, I, I grew up doing. So I was looking at um, coming back home and I was talking with Veronica and um, the economist in her was, you know, <laughs> looking at uh, which, which city in Australia had the best, you know, uh, economic landscape for hospitality and, and we kind of started looking at Canberra and, you know, just through connections and, and uh, you know, having a few phone calls here and there, uh, we've, we've ended up in Canberra and um, I've signed on as culinary director for the Lawns of the Lobby precinct, which is uh, in the National Parliamentary Triangle in Parks. So, yeah, a little bit of a, a, a culture shock, but a, a good culture shock. Um, it's really nice to be home. It was actually quite emotional coming home after because we hadn't been home for four years. We, we stayed in the US the entire time. So, yeah. Well, it was, it was a pretty tricky four years to be jetting back and forth. Um, so, we, we all know why. Um, and that's so interesting. I mean, Veronica is such a data nerd and um, it actually makes complete sense that it was her that drove this. In in my mind, you know, you'd been headhunted and they, you know, some Canberra restaurateurs, um, yeah, cast that far and wide and found yeah. you. But, um, of course, um, yeah, that makes complete sense. Uh, so, what's the offering going to be there? What, what sort of venues are you going to be overseeing at Lawns of the Lobby? So, I guess it's, it's a little bit different to what I was previously doing at Lume, I mean, that was very much a, uh, <laughs> let's say, a vanity project <clears throat> It's probably a nice way to put it. Um, and, you know, obviously not having been in hospitality for um, uh, close to five years now, or four and a half years, I, I just wanted to kind of get in and do something completely different. So, 
um, the lawns of the lobby is basically um, a food precinct that is um, in the old lobby restaurant building uh, just on the edge of the National Rose Garden. So this restaurant opened in, I think it was 1969, was quite iconic. It's been the, the scene of like a lot of different, um, you know, political lunches, long lunches. I'm sure there's some behind the scenes conversations and, and, and parliamentary um, gossip that's been had there. And we've um, basically, uh, the, the people that I'm working for have bought the building um, off the government with the direction of completely revamping the site and making the parliamentary triangle an exciting um, entertainment destination. So there's already an existing restaurant there called Koto, which has opened uh, in August, which is doing amazingly well. It's a really um, high-end Japanese restaurant, amazing food, amazing fit out. Um, And we're basically on the other side of that and facing out into the Rose Garden. We've got a beautiful um, octagonal building, which opens up completely facing out onto the garden and uh, there's two offerings from there one is called ballyhoo which is um, basically our take on like a um, uh, a restaurant slash wine bar so we've got a, a great charcoal grill we've got a marana forney pizza oven in there wood-fired oven so lots of like toasted flatbreads and lots of cooking over coal um, and then i guess leaning into a, a bit of what I've been doing over the last few years, which is a lot of like fermentation as well. That'll be a big part of the menu. And then just really honing in on, you know, that our produce that we have here is absolutely amazing. And I think after being overseas for four years and eating at some of the, you know, best restaurants in the US, we really do hit above our weight here. I, I really miss the food here. I miss the produce. It's so much better than anything else I've had <laughs> In, in the US so um, that's Ballyhoo and then we, we're doing a more casual offering called Roses which is very much uh, focused around the, the, the wood-fired oven so uh, pizza by the slice um, toasted uh, wood-fired sandwiches uh, during the day and then into, into the night uh, wood-fired, wood-fired pies and a few other bits and pieces but really centered around that um, that wood oven so it really is kind of a precinct for everyone. We're really trying to attract people to the area and, and keep them there, not just as a tourist, but as actually as a uh, an entertainment uh, precinct where they can just come and have amazing food and wine, hang out in the garden. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of different options there. Really exciting. It sounds exciting. It sounds, yeah, it sounds delicious and it sounds like it's a – yeah, well worth visiting, you know, if only to listen to the walls talk, but um, yeah, definitely to eat your food. Um, I don't even know where to go with this conversation, Sean, because there are so many things that I want to pick up on. But let's start with Lume because you're the one that called it a vanity project. Um, it was a tasting menu restaurant. Uh, it was pretty high concept. Um, the food was sometimes challenging. There was a lot of theatre to the experience. Um, in a low, uh, in a in a very bijou sort of way, uh, yeah, you, it was sort of food as art, but there was quite a lot demanded of the diner. Um, how do you reflect on it now? I am extremely proud of what we did at Lume. I am the first to admit that, you know, a, 
I guess to the average punter, they would probably look at that sort of restaurant and think it's completely wanky and, you know, who's this guy chatting around with his tweezers? But, you know, I, I guess when, when you're a professional and, and you, you take your career very seriously and, and you, you work in, you know, all these amazing restaurants and you, and you build yourself up and you train and you focus and you get to open your own restaurant, um, you, <laughs> you basically put your your you know, your whole career behind it and this is what I can do. And I, I think it did take a couple of years to kind of really hone in on what that restaurant did best, which was very theatrical. And that's personally what I found really exciting as well was actually working with all these amazing people that we had come through the doors, um, both front and back of house. And, you know, looking at where those people are now, you know, where they've moved on to, we've got people spread all over the world in you know, some of the world's best restaurants in, in different positions. I actually find that hugely satisfying, more so than, I guess, any of the actual offering that we had at the restaurant is actually the people that came through and made it what it was. So, you know, that's probably a big focus that I want to have uh, with the new venue is like, how do we do that again? How do we, you know, encourage people to take hospitality serious as a profession and not just a, a stopgap at uni or to get their PR or, or something like that. So um, I, I guess Canberra is notoriously hard for finding um, good staff. There's definitely a lot of people here, but we really do want to, you know, that's, that's what I'm passionate about now is like how do we train and mentor young people so that they're in the industry and they stay in the industry and it's exciting and they don't burn out after two or three years. Because that's the other thing with Lume. I completely burnt out from that place. It was so demanding of me personally. Um, you know, doing 90, 100 hours a week to make that place tick. Hugely satisfying, but just, you know, obviously that's not sustainable. So, Well, and also when you're doing that, it's, it is really hard to do what you say you want to do now, which is to, to mentor people and to give them the kind of experience that's going to make them really see a viable future for themselves. Um, but back on the Lume experience, what do you reckon was a, was peak Lume? What's a, a dish or a night that happened there that really, you know, for people who didn't experience it, really explains it for them? Well, I think it was probably a night that you know very well that you're a part of. <laughs> when we did the art versus science dinner, that was uh, a huge amount of fun for us and for everyone that was there. So um, I guess most people would expect me to say Pearl on the Ocean Floor, but. Um, that dish, I think once I was on MasterChef with that dish, it got um, <laughs> the kitchen was completely overwhelmed with it, and we we to be honest actually got sick of making it. And but I, I think the art versus science dinner was was cool because it, it basically showed off, you know, everything that was great about that restaurant. You know, it was very whimsical, it was fun, it was theatrical. You know, the food is on point. There's a lot of depth of flavor there. There's a lot of technique there. And it's very experiential, multi-sensory, you know, triggering all people's, uh, people's all, the, all their senses when they come in through that front door and even beforehand, you know, with the lead up to the dinner and working with all, um, you know, multidisciplinary people. It's, it was uh, a lot of fun. So. <laughs> oh, I just, yeah, I've just got flashes of that popping up for me. So it was, so people were dressed as 
scientists and there were, I guess, performers planted at the table as though they were guests and kind of, you know, designing the experience for the people around them. There was the bit of blood and gore and were there like, was there a poison element or something? Like it was, um, yeah, it was very immersive. Um, it was I think also- we staged a nuclear meltdown. Yeah, I think he did. Uh- <laughs> and, and piled everyone into our back cold room, our cool room and then um, brought them back out again. And there was- There was ticking clocks. dancing and- in our wine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was, it was fun. It was very cheeky. And all completely made up. It, it was it was basically to highlight um, what the future of food looked like through our lens. And it was with the Prague Culinary Institute, which does not exist, but was yeah a, fig- <laughs> a figment of um, our imagination. Uh, Veronica's Veronica's old man played Professor Edelman, who was the the CEO that had possible like uh, right wing backgrounds, just all sorts of crazy stuff, but. Yeah, again, like just fun. We we just had fun with it. And I think, you know, that reflected in what we did at the restaurant. Um, and so speaking about the future of food, what you did then decide the future of food was, was plant-based cheese. So you had an amazing vegan menu at Lume. It was always part of what you did. And one of the hero dishes was this um, – blue cheese made of cauliflower and so that was sort of the the jumping off point for this whole new direction which took you guys to the US and to Silicon Valley and food tech. Um, so, yeah, tell us about that. Um, what was, yeah, what was it like to throw in this fine dining identity and become a manufacturer? Yeah, I mean, uh, I just even just thinking about that question, there's just so many emotions because the last four years have been uh, it's literally the hardest thing I've ever done, just hugely challenging. And because we did it in a foreign country, um, doubly so. But you know, I I, um, I was I was at Lume and I was basically thinking to myself, you know, what what are we what are we doing with this? What's next? Um, you know, you, you're like approaching 40 and, you know, you, you can't feel your legs when you get up in the morning. So, like, what what am I doing this for? Am I really being challenged every day? Or, you know, as most tasting master, uh, menu restaurants become, it's basically just like a, a, you know, a military operation where you're just kind of going through the motions every day. Everything's planned out. It kind of, you know, sucks all the creativity out of it. So, you know, I, I always... Um, I guess kind of think left field a little bit and we, you know, we had been playing around with all these uh, vegan dishes at at the restaurant and uh, Veronica came in one night and actually tried some of the cheeses that I'd been playing around with that were, you know, dotted around our our wine cellar. And um, I could just see like the, the cogs turning um, in front of me. um, And she, She's like, we should commercialize these. These are amazing. There's a huge market opportunity for this. And um, that's exactly what we did. So we thought it was a good time to get out of hospitality for a while because creatively that's what I was feeling. And, you know, I think even before COVID, um, the way that 
um, we were running the restaurant was very unsustainable. So it just seemed like a good time to get into something completely different. And, you know, we commercialized the products pretty quickly. We got a lot of interest very quickly from uh, venture capital. Um, Veronica did an amazing job of actually raising money for the business. And we found ourselves in New York probably, I don't know, it was probably a couple of months after we actually left the restaurant. It was pretty quick. So um, we went over there, did an accelerator, and then just grew the business from there. Got more funding um, uh, for our, our, our seed round. Moved to California, moved to LA, set up a manufacturing facility, um, further commercialized products. And we ended up, I think, at the at the height of Lume before we moved on from, uh, not Lume, uh, Grounded, was um, we're selling into just under 2,000 stores across the US, which sounds like a lot, but it was actually, you know, the US is, is, is a huge country with, you know, uh, eight times the population of Australia, I think. So, um, again, hugely challenging, um, especially for me not having a background in food science. You know, obviously being a pastry chef for so many years, there's a, there's a, a certain element of that. But I did have to learn a lot of things from scratch and go from making food and then serving it, you know, uh, an hour later to get to, to like 50 guests to making food that is going to last six months. And, you know, talking in like, you know, tons and, and uh, um, yeah, just, I don't know, I, I could talk for about three hours on, on our experience. <laughs> Well, we probably don't have three hours, but um, I'd love to ask you uh, to talk about it a little bit more. I mean, Veronica suggested that you, that you may have some horrific insights into the world of food manufacturing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I don't know, I, I don't, I don't want to sound too negative about, you know, the future of the world or anything like that. But I guess being in Silicon Valley and kind of mixing with that crowd and, and, and raising money and, and, you know, mixing with all these other startups that are doing, you know, pretty amazing stuff scientifically and just kind of seeing how the sausage is made on the other side of the, of, of the spectrum. Um, and, you know, the people that are throwing literally billions of dollars into this um, alternative protein industry, um, just how misguided some of it is. Um, you know, uh, Silicon Valley really is a bubble. And I think there's a lot of decisions being made about how we're going to eat in the future that just make no sense whatsoever. And there's a lot of companies that are getting funding, you know, that are working on things that are, you know, on the bench top, they're quite cool. And, and you know, again, um, I guess useful for a very small amount of the population. But how, how do we... The bigger question is like, how, how are we going to feed, you know, the, the billions of people that are going to you know, um, materialize on, on earth over the next decade um, and not necessarily in, 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 um, in Western countries, you know, where, where, where I feel like we're kind of focusing on the wrong areas when it comes to, you know, what the future of food looks like. So it was, you know, from, from our personal experience with Grounded, you know, when you start coming up against, you know, the Crafts and the Nestle's of the world where they've got, you know, they're, they're a multinational corporation with billions of dollars and we had, you know, I think we raised $4 million, which seems like a lot of money, but it's it's like giving someone $20 to, you know, go and cook a, a, 
a Lume tasting menu, basically. That's that's kind of the equivalent. So, um, again, super proud of what we did with Grounded. You know, we we felt like we kind of you know conquered our part of the world with that, and we did some. We had an amazing technology uh, which we developed, and again, like creatively, personally, hugely satisfying to be able to do that. Um, seeing Veronica as a CEO battling it out with you know, all the Silicon Valley tech bros that would not give her time of day, but she was up there and she, you know, she's still doing, you know, she's, she's working as a, a fractional marketing officer for a lot of their companies now. So, you know, it's, it was a huge change from, um, from running a, a, a tiny fine dining restaurant in Melbourne. In a, in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's that's such interesting insights and, you know, there wouldn't be many people that we would speak to that have, um, yeah, been embedded in that world. I mean, it sounds like you had these really cool, exciting products that you made on a very small scale, but it sounds like those four years, I mean, you've scaled it up, but it sounds like it was dawning, a slow demoralizing dawning of <laughs> realization about, you know, the world that you were, that you'd got into. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, the bigger that you become, it becomes less about um, food as something that's meant for nourishment. It just becomes a, a strict commodity, which is not how we should be thinking about food. Obviously, there's logistics at play, but you know, when 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 you're talking about craft products or Nestle Nestle products, I single those two out because they they were kind of our direct competitors, but. You know, they're, they're, there's absolutely nothing nutritious about those products, um, particularly the plant-based products that they're, you know, they're basically shoving modified starches and and additives into them. You know, you start talking about, um, you know, selling fresh products into retailers, you know, in Australia, it's, it's challenging because we're a huge country and we've only got, you know, we've got Woolies and Coles and RGA to a lesser extent. There you've got literally you know, hundreds of different retailers that you all have to deal with. They all want um, they all want stocking fees. They all want this. They all want that. They want marketing dollars behind it. And they also want a huge shelf life from your product, which is, you know, the first thing they ask you is not, you know, is this good for my customers? It's like, can I freeze this? Or how long, how long will this last? Or can you do this cheaper? Yeah. <laughs> They're not very tasty questions. No, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, it was a big culture shock for me because I'm trying to like make the products as, you know, from being a, a chef's mindset of like, how do I make these better, tastier, more delicious, more nutritious? And it's, you, you're coming up against food scientists who are doing the exact opposite. They're like, how do I make this cheaper? How do I strip out, you know, these ingredients so it's got a shorter ingredient list that, you know, customers are basically being greenwashed into thinking is good. You know, in some aspects it is good, but, you know, the, some of our products that we were kind of up against were, are basically just like a starch block with, you know, a bunch of E-numbers behind it and some food colouring and that's what's being sold as a nutritious alternative. So, you know, it's just bullshit. So, <laughs> that's what we're up against. And, um, you know, I hope I don't sound too bitter about it, but it, it's more... Uh, disconcerting more than anything, I would say, just seeing how, you know, these huge companies are, you know, uh, huge companies that do actually have the, the 
the means behind them to change how customers think about food. Because the way that we eat in the Western world is, is, you know, it's relatively new. You know, the whole breakfast, lunch and dinner thing, you know, the cereals and pastries and all that sort of thing is very, very new in, in human evolution. So, you know, without getting too deep on that subject, it's, um, you know, these companies that do have the opportunity to change things, they just don't. They're just trying to get more money out of people. And, you know, the pandemic highlighted that, I think, a lot a lot more. Yeah. I mean, I think um, you do sound a bit bummed out, but I think it's like you're appropriately sceptical. And I think it's, um, uh, you know, as much as when we talk about, you know, when we talk about the restaurant world, we're generally talking about real ingredients cooked for, you know, real consumers. And I think so much of the food world is uh, very far from that. And I mean, you might as well realise it. Uh, Yeah. I mean, my dealings with those huge multinationals are that um, they're just, there are so many layers that even the idea that there is a hidden kernel of truth feels um, unlikely. It's, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I totally, I get it. I get what you're saying, although I haven't had the experiences, of course, that, that, that you guys have. So, um, so given, given your experiences, Sean, and, you know, this, this opportunity to come to Canberra and cook um, pretty real food for pretty real people, what, what is it like to um, start re-entering the world of restaurants? Uh, to me, it's really exciting. Super exciting. Um, I, it did take a while to kind of get my head around, you know, and because I was based in Melbourne for so many years as well, just, um, you know, it's just immersing yourself into that into that world again because it, it is such a unique uh, thing that we do every day. So I really did miss it, you know, after all the stuff that I've just said, you know, I, <laughs> I mean, you said yourself, yeah, I, I kind of just sound a bit bummed about it and I just – I really did miss hospitality and I miss cooking real food and giving it to people straight away and, and seeing their reaction. And, you know, the restaurants are actually this amazingly beautiful thing where you, it's its own little microcosm. And, um, you know, I, I did miss that. So, like I said before, we have some of the best produce in the world. And, you know, the food scene here is completely underrated on, on, a, on a world stage. You know, it, it's it's kind of strange living in the US how little Australia is kind of mentioned in in, in world news, um, unless it's you know something about kangaroos or some stupid stereotypical thing. Um, so, getting into restaurants is you know that's kind of I, I guess in my blood. I'm, I, I I know what I'm doing <laughs> as well. I don't kind of feel like an apprentice again, which I I've, I have felt like over the last uh, few years. Um, and just working with, with, you know, great people again. I mean, that's kind of the focus now is, is, you know, finding a new team and, and people that are equally as passionate about, you know, about this good food and good service and, and ultimately hospitality. You know, you're asking before about what we did at Lume. I think ultimately what we became was, you know, it was all about the guest and the guest experience, whether it was front or back of house or food or wine or how we talk to them. I mean, that's, hospitality at the end of the day that's what we're all doing so that's that's what we're focusing on and i'm, I'm, I'm trying to find people that uh, you know think the same way basically um it's interesting that you talked about the tasting menu format as 
quashing creativity because I think a lot of people in hospitality would think that, you know, that is the beating heart of creativity when you are, you're deciding what the guest eats and you just roll it out. But um, where do you think creativity lies as a chef? Um, I think it's a personal thing, to be honest. It depends on what gets you out of bed in the morning. Um, you know, when I was talking about Lima before, I, I found myself just getting getting bored with it. And, you know, I, I'm sure most of that came from a mental aspect, just complete, being completely burnt out. And, you know, I've made no secret of the fact that I had, you know, I've, I've had uh, mental health issues in the past. And, you know, that's always a big part of it as well. And, and a lot of people in the industry struggle with that. And we still don't really talk about it openly that much it's just kind of seen as a you know oh yeah we've got to talk about that now but no one still really does or no one really addresses it so um you know creativity to me is is you know that there needs to be guidelines if if you are given the brief that you can just do whatever you want that's boring because anyone can just write this kind of whimsical menu and kind of you know buy in all these fantastic things and throw this kind of menu together but when you've got guidelines and you've been given a brief, I actually find that more creative where it's like I've, I've, I've got to fit within this box and I've got, you know, I've got to hit these margins and I've got these people to do that with. How do I deliver a unique experience? You know, how do I deliver a great hospitality to people, uh, to guests that come in? So I, I find that really creative, you know, the whole business aspect of it now and not just writing a menu. That's kind of the easy bit. The, the the challenging bit is actually forming the business and and training the people and mentoring them and getting them to think how you do and and uh, you know ultimately you can't do everything yourself. So uh, something else I was quite uh, I guess personally proud of with Lume was that you know I I didn't necessarily need to be there anymore. You know we trained everyone so well that the place just ran like clockwork, and I guess that was ultimately boring for me as well. So <laughs> I kind of phased myself out of the business a lot. But um, you know, from a from a, uh, a a challenging aspect, it was hugely satisfying being able to do that and having those people come through Lume and then go on, and you see you see the. Um, you know, you see the, the the effect that those people have on the industry now. They get, they've gone on to do their own thing and they're doing these hugely creative things and all sorts of different offerings as well, not just other restaurants. So that to me is like really uh, hugely satisfying. So I want to do that again. That's To me, that's creativity. Sean, what kind of conversations should we be having about mental health in hospitality? I think just really... Just talking about it on a, on a regular basis, um, you know, checking in with your staff on a regular basis. I, I know it's difficult as, you know, as an employer, um, having to work around, you know, if someone says to you, I need a mental health day or I'm struggling with this. Because we're under so much pressure, particularly in hospitality, it's a huge challenge. Um, and it's kind of like the last thing that you want to hear from your staff is, hey, I've got a problem. You know, you want your staff to solve problems, not cause them. But ultimately, you know, it's a people industry. We're working with real people. We're not working with robots. Um, maybe in the future, um, unfortunately, but 
<laughs> but at the moment, we're, we're, we're working with people, so we need to accommodate to them. Um, we, we can't just kind of bitch and moan about it and or, or just say get over it anymore. And I, I still think that kind of happens a lot. So, you know, I, the, the, the challenge is now how do we get people into the industry first and then how do we look after them and how do we make hospitality a viable profession for kids that are leaving school? What, what is going to attract them to this, you know, to this industry that is still seen as kind of like this Gordon Ramsay-esque, you know, shouting and yelling and hot and sweaty? I mean, you know, it's not overly appealing to people. So if it's seen as like supportive and creative, um, you know, that's much more appealing. So we, we need to highlight that. And you wouldn't be the only, you know, owner, employer, leader who has their own mental health challenges from time to time. I mean, what is it, you know, what can employers do when they, um, yeah, hit these situations? Um, I think ultimately it comes down to yourself just knowing knowing how you tick. I mean, when I was younger, I had a lot of therapy and I kind of figured out, you know, this is – these are triggers for me. This is what's happening in my head sometimes. This is, you know, these are things that I should steer away from. Um, you know, if you know that about yourself, it's like learning about food and, and about recipes. You can't just like take a recipe and then give it to someone and tell them to make it. They've, they've got to understand how it works first. Otherwise, it's just going to be a shitty reproduction. So just having an understanding about yourself and then, you know, then you can start to look after other people. You know, in my mind, I, I feel like um, just having that understanding that, you know, no one's perfect. Um, you know, there is going to be challenging days. There is going to be days where you don't feel like doing this or that, you know, you're like, why the fuck am I in hospitality? This is so stressful. You know, my, my, my cogs are not lining up this week or whatever. Um, you know, customers are being difficult, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, that's just the reality of the industry. And I think if, if you let, you know, that mental health aspect get the better of you, which, you know, from time to time it does, but if you know yourself and you know how to deal with it uh, and you have hopefully a support structure in place of people that do understand what you go through from time to time, and that's where talking about it comes in. I, I think just having that support structure as well and, and you know, my partner Veronica is amazingly supportive. She knows exactly how I tick, and sometimes I just need to be left alone. And um, you know, sometimes I don't. So, if you've got someone in your life that can do that for you, and it doesn't need to be a partner, it can be, you know, the staff at work as well. And and that's my my whole point in a nutshell is just talking about it more. It, it's not a taboo subject. Two out of three people have a mental illness, so we just need to get the fuck over it and start talking about it more. And it's not—it's not a weird thing. Simple as that. Yeah, really powerful. And so, Sean, you're going to be interviewing people for positions that you've got going. Like, if you have, you know, a young school leaver, you perhaps sense a bit of a spark in them. They might be someone that you could see uh, spending a really. Um, wonderful career in hospitality how would you sell the industry to them uh that's a good question <laughs> i because i'm i'm literally doing that at the moment I, i've actually been having a conversation with um 
a woman that's exactly the same age as me and she's looking at leaving her current profession that she's done since she left school and becoming a chef. So I've been very delicately saying like these, you know, these are the hours, it's a little bit antisocial unless, you know, you actually love what you do. At, at the end of the day, you actually have to, um, I guess, care about people and you have to like food. I mean, I wasn't really brought up around good food. Like my, my parents obviously <laughs> know how to cook, but we weren't like a foodie household. I, I, I guess I kind of discovered that by myself. But, you know, I would, I would say it's a, it's a hugely creative industry and there's so many different aspects to it. I mean, you know, just look at the career I've had and all the different places I've worked in and all the different avenues I've gone down from pastry chef to baking to, you know, fine dining to more casual and then into the food manufacturing scene and food science and then back to, you know, being more, uh, I guess, business orientated as well. There's so many different aspects to it and it's all, it's all very creative. So hugely exciting. I mean, even what we're doing at the moment, we've got so many different aspects to the kitchen that we're running um, because we've got different venues. Hugely exciting for a young chef to come in and be able to learn how to do all this stuff from scratch, from, you know, doughs and fermentation and sauces and cooking over fire and, and you know, actually going out and talking to customers, which we force the chefs to do. So, you know, I, I would love to come along to a project like this as, as a first year and, and be like, wow, okay, I've got all my, you know, eggs in a basket here. Oh, I love it. It's exciting. And I'm excited to come and see what you get up to there, Sean. Um, what a great chat. I'm so happy you are back in Australia and we get to eat your food, although it's so different from the food of yours I've experienced in the past. Will there be any plant-based cheese? Um, <laughs> maybe not to start off with. I'm still... <laughs> still scarred. Still scarred a little bit. I've, I may have lost the recipes. No. <laughs> um, at some point, I mean, you know, that's that's the world we live in now. There's there's more and more people going, going plant-based. So, um, as far as grounded hemp-based cheeses, uh, probably not. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah, all the best with staffing it up and getting it up and going. Um, yeah, thank you so much for sharing with us today uh, a really yeah worthwhile and valuable conversation that I think will mean a lot to a lot of people. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Danny. It's great to chat with you again. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.